Hey everybody, welcome back to Patriot to the Core Podcast. I'm Thad Forrester and this is episode number 85. I appreciate you listening. Today's guest, Bobby Weissmiller, is a federal employee of 14 years. He is also one of millions who has been affected by the government mandate for the COVID-19 vaccine. That is part of what we talk about today. Bobby feels strongly against it. He has chosen not to take it. He shares his reasons why about his health history and his other personal beliefs. He's awaiting an answer. He's already been denied his medical waiver and he's still waiting a religious exemption. I had the vaccine. I'm okay with it. Bobby has not had it. That's okay. We believe in freedom. Uh, this is the United States of America and the, the mandate is absolute government overreach. But we also talk about his faith, how he's getting through this. He's the breadwinner in his family. We talk about his upbringing. His father was a drug dealer, a drug addict. He was completely unfaithful to his mom. So therefore, his father was in and out of his life. And Bobby thought his dad was the devil himself. Bobby felt like God wanted him to break the cycle of drugs and abuse and infidelity in his family. And he did that. You don't have to live by the hand you've been dealt. And he's a great example of that. So we have a good conversation, cover multiple things, fatherhood, convictions, faith, health, fitness. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoy the podcast, please rate it. You can easily do it on your phone through your podcast, the player that you're using. And uh, you can also write a review, which takes a little bit more time, but you can at least just go all the way to the right and hit five stars. I would appreciate that. It makes the podcast more accessible to more people. Thank you. Have a great week. Hope you enjoy. All right, Bobby. So we're going to cover a few things today, but I'll, let's just start with today and with your job situation and how you've been affected by the vaccine mandate. You and so many other people, you're one of the people who's probably closest to me that whose job is in jeopardy now. We, what's going on and how are you dealing with it? I think for anybody that's listening, I'm a federal employee, worked for the federal government for 14 years now. And Back in September, I believe, the president announced that there would be a vaccine mandate for all federal employees and there would be no testing, no other avenues to get out of taking the vaccine. And we had the option to submit a religious exemption. I submitted the religious exemption. I also submitted a medical exemption. And so for those, you know, again, listen, and I do have a medical history where about 11 years ago now, working in a government capacity, I got blood clots, deep vein thrombosis, which is clotting the, in the veins. And those ultimately led to pulmonary embolisms, which is blood clots in the lungs. And I spent about eight or nine years, I'd say going to about 500 doctor visits over the last eight to nine years, trying to figure out what was causing the clotting because I did the standard three months of, of blood thinners under doctor's orders. And the prognosis was, was great. They, you know, they, they just attributed it to a, a minor knee scope that I had of my meniscus, which was a 15 minute procedure. And I walked out of, and that at that point they didn't think anything of it. And so three months later, when I went off the anticoagulants, the pulmonary embolisms developed. And once they developed, I did 12 months of blood thinners. At the end of 12 months, again, the same prognosis, was seeing a second doctor. He agreed with the first that things were good. I'd go back to my career as a federal agent. 
and have no issues the rest of my life. However, God had other plans. And within five days of going off the blood thinners, after the 12 month period, I developed deep vein thrombosis again. So clotting of the veins in the legs once again. And I've gone off blood thinners periodically over the last 10 to 11 years for surgeries. And every time I do, the blood clots come back. So at this point, undiagnosed with a condition that is life-threatening. There's no reason why it keeps happening that they can discover. I have no genetic abnormalities, no blood abnormalities. It's simply an undiagnosed condition that I live with every day. I take medication. And so I've talked to multiple doctors at this point who all agree that I am not a candidate for the vaccine. And with that being said, just to be clear, I'm not sure I would get the vaccine if I, if I didn't have blood thinners, just based on the research that I've done, the fact that I've had COVID, I did well through COVID, my family had COVID, we had no issues. So I do believe there's a natural immunity that exists with this virus. And so I submitted the medical exemption. At this point, as of today, November 7th, I've been denied the medical exemption. I don't know if that can change. I have not spoke to anyone. I received an email. The email was very clear that I am not to respond to this email. I don't know the person who sent the email. They simply work for the Equal Employment Opportunity Division, so the EEO division. And the email was very clear that at this point, my medical would not be considered. So right now I'm waiting to find out just like everybody else, if my religious exemption will be considered. And, you know, I don't want to speculate. I don't want to make any assumptions. We hear different things. I hear something different every day. Um, some people tell me that none of them will be approved. Some people tell me that all of them will be approved. So uh, I'm 15 days away as of now from a drop dead date of November 22nd. I am not vaccinated and I am prepared along with my family to lose my job. And that's where it stands. Yeah. So how have you been dealing with it, Bobby? I mean, you, you moved recently to a new state, you got a new house and, and you got three kids and a wife. You're the breadwinner. You're basically the sole breadwinner of the family, I think pretty much. So, I mean, how you do it, dealing with it mentally and emotionally? You know, when the, when the mandate was originally announced was probably the hardest for me. I was angry. Like everybody else I have, uh, I am a supervisor in my current position I have quite a few employees. I'm very close with those employees and a number of them are not vaccinated. We're going through the same thing. Uh, they are the breadwinners in their families. It was frustrating. You know, you have a lot of questions. And I think, I think that's a unique thing about being a believer is God allows us to be angry. Uh, he allows us to question his design of things. And so I did. I questioned it often in the beginning. I listened to my favorite pastors, John MacArthur, Vody Bakum, to get a better understanding of why he allows what I perceive to be evil intention. And, you know, I think through doing that, through reading scripture, through praying with my wife, and, and, and the biggest thing would be talking about it with my wife, talking about it with my friends like you. I think it helped me come to an understanding of we're going to be okay. All right. We sat the kids down. And we told them what was happening. We told them what the future might be. And, and we went down different avenues of, of how we will prepare for it and how we will handle it. 
And at this point, I would tell you that I'm fine with whatever happens. If I do lose my job, I am okay with it. We've prepared ourselves financially. And if we have to, if we have to sell our house and move, we're very fortunate in that we have great family that are willing to support us, willing to take us in until we figure out our next step. But at this point, I'd say I'm, I have a sense of peace. Obviously, you know, the unknown can be frustrating at times and I'm human. I still get angry about it from time to time, but I do my best to stay away from news media, to stay away from either side of it, to not read social media, to not have conversations that are gonna really inflame my frustration about it. I do talk to my employees about it to try to make them feel better, to try to help them through their emotions. But you know, I have, I have a great support system. My wife and I have a great relationship. She's prepared for whatever happens. And you know, I think God has just given us this sense of, of calmness and understanding that, hey, this is my design and whatever this leads to, as long as you continue to have that faith in me, you're going to be fine. And so, yeah, as of today, I have a, I have a great sense of peace about it. My wife and I had this exact conversation yesterday. Um, she just kind of out of the blue as I was making breakfast asked me, where are you? Where, where is your mind with being 15, 16 days away from this? What, three days before Thanksgiving? Um, and I told her the same thing I'm telling you, that I do, I feel this sense of peace, that I'm, that I'm okay with whatever happens. We've prepared ourselves. We've spoke to our children. We have a 12-year-old that is probably more introspective than, than the other two younger ones about this. And I think it impacts her the most. She's probably the biggest more, you know, worrier when it comes to this. And uh, we've just done our best to have conversations with her and be very open as to where we are and how we're going to prepare we knew this was coming. We knew a mandate was coming. That was just the writing on the wall. And although you know I'm vaccinated, I chose to get vaccinated on my own, like my wife. And so my job is not in jeopardy right now, but I'm blown away. And anger is what I have experienced too. I mean, yeah, my, I still have a job, fortunately. Of course, who knows what'll happen, but I love my job. I love who I work for. It's not right that that you may lose your job for something like this. So I've been, I've been very, I've been very bothered by all this. As you know, we've talked about it. We have, you and I have slightly different, we have some different opinions on the, on the vaccine. I'm I'm not like, I'm not, Hey, everybody needs to go get the vaccine. I don't care. I just think people need to make that decision and, mm-hmm. and they can choose to do what they want. Has there been a point with you or anyone in your family that it, maybe, maybe even, maybe you consider it a weak point, or, or, I mean, maybe not even that where he said, look, let's just, just get the shot and, and move on. Has that ever happened? As of today? No, it hasn't. You know, again, I, I go back to, I do believe there's a natural immunity. We are incredibly healthy other than, you know, my blood clots. We do our best to eat healthy. We exercise regularly. We get plenty of sunlight, vitamin D. We're outside all the time. We've all had COVID. So we do believe there's a, there's a point of T-cell immunity that, you know, if, if, it, if the virus mutates, comes around again, we're going to be okay. And we do things to prepare. You know, we, again, we, we go back to, we take care of our bodies. We educate our children on what it means to, to be healthy, to get exercise, to do all the things that God has allowed us to do to naturally be healthy people. 
you know, I, I stand by what you just said. If somebody wants to get the vaccine, I'm perfectly okay with that. I've had family members that have gotten the vaccine. My mother got the vaccine. My grandmother got the vaccine. That's their personal choice. If you choose to, whatever you choose to do with your body is, is your choice. At this point, no, I've not thought, you know, I need to go get this vaccine in order to save my job, to save my family, because I think there's co coercion in that. There's, there's a little bit of you're being forced to do something. That's what that they want you to do against, anyway. Yeah, that, against your beliefs. Um, and I don't think that's biblical. I think, I think that, again, that defies a biblical government. You know, mm -hmm. the government was put in place to uphold good and, and fight against evil. And I believe there's a, there's a point where you have to view some of what's going on as a bit of evil. And whether it's greed, whether it's power, authoritarianism, coercion, you know, whatever you want to call it, there's got to be a point where somebody says enough is enough. We can't yeah. force people to do something that they don't want to do. And we're taking away livelihoods. Yeah. At this point, no, I have no intention of getting it. I don't plan on allowing my children to get it. Could that change? Of course, anything can change that. I, I pray about this every day. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that God is going to, he is going to lay the path out in front of me. And if he puts it on my heart that I need to go get this vaccine, then I'm going to listen to God. I'm going to obey his commands. And that's what, that's what he wants me to do. He has not done that up to this point. He's not done it for my wife. And I think if, if you were having this conversation with her, she'd be probably a little bit more adamant and strong-willed against it for me than I am. Um, you know, she worries a lot more about my condition than I do. Well, yeah. And, I mean, there's uh, been a long time where she's worried if you're going to wake up or come home from work, you know, with your health. And rightfully so. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, you know, PTSD is not just for, for members of the military. I suffered from PTSD with these blood clots for a long time. Uh, you know, thinking that, you know, the embolism was very traumatic. I spent a week in the hospital. Uh, there was nothing like feeling like I couldn't breathe. And the, and the most traumatic part was when I had my first embolism, I had a one year and I couldn't imagine, you know, I, I had the conversation with the doctor where the doctor looked right at me. She, she was very clear, very, very firm. And you're lucky that you're alive because your clots passed through your heart. And if they had stopped in your heart or gone to your brain, you'd have been dead instantly. And at the time, I didn't realize that blood clots were the third leading cause of instant death in this country. I was young. I was uneducated on it. I just thought I'm going to be fine. And so it's been very stressful on my wife. The second episode we had two kids. We had a two-week-old at the time. So I get it. And she's a lot more firm in this than I am, that she does not want me to get this. She does not want me to put my life in jeopardy again for what she perceives as you know, very off, off the... <laughs> I can't even say the word. Um, you know, a government that's trying to force it on us. What about um, how you got to kind of where you are as far as your what seems to be steady faith. I'm not sure if you've always been that way, but like you, you have an interesting upbringing. What about that? Like with your, I don't know where you want to start, Bobby, like maybe with your, with your dad or before then or after then, but I know you're, you have a, a unique, I don't know, a unique, a crazy upbringing. Sure. sure. Tell us, tell us about it. My father was a womanizer as was my grandfather and his father and, all right, and, so, and your dad was married to your mom, right? Yes. Okay. Correct. 
Yep. My father and my uncle were also drug dealers. You know, we can go down, we can go as deep as you want to on that. But the bottom line is, this may seem strange to anybody that's listening, but I knew at six or seven years old that I was, there was something different about me. I felt it. I understood things that maybe the average six or seven year old shouldn't understand, couldn't understand, wouldn't understand, wouldn't want to understand. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't have a, a childhood in the sense of, of, of your children or my children where I played ball with my dad, where I got to play, you know, freely with no worry. I think about six or seven years old, I thought I lived a normal life. I thought everything was normal until I walked in my house one day and my parents were fighting and I watched my, my father hit my mom with something. And I remember it just rocked me to the core. And I remember it so clearly was be, the reason I remember it so clearly is because the same day, my cousins who were my neighbors were moving and it, it had this profound impact on me. I mean, I was losing my best friend, my cousin, Brett. And I remember just my life spinning upside down, watching my father hit my mom. And so that day, my father also left. And I don't remember how long he left for, but it was quite some time. And it, it turned our world upside down. Um, here was this man that I wanted to look up to, wanted him to be my father. You know, as, as children, as young boys, I think we look for those role models. And I can see it now in my son. I can see it in your children. Any man I know that has boys, those boys, they look up to their father as a hero, as a, as a, as a model of what they want to become. And I didn't have that. From that point on, he was gone. He was absent. I didn't know at the time what that meant. I was, I was young, but I, I understood the violence. And at that time, I don't know if you remember, but I think we were going through, I think the D.A.R.E. program was standing up in elementary schools and the Just Say No program was being stood up by Nancy Reagan. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a period of time where he came back to live with us. And I still can vividly recall looking out my bedroom window late one night and I saw him outside and he lit something and I thought he was a cigarette smoker and I just couldn't imagine my father as a cigarette smoker. And, you know, I betrayed my parents' wishes. I went downstairs after bedtime and I looked at my mom and I said, does dad smoke cigarettes? And she looked right at me and she said, you're going to have to ask him what he smokes. And he came back in the house and I said, do you smoke cigarettes? And he said, no, I don't smoke cigarettes. And I said, well, I saw you smoking something. And he told me at seven years old that he was a chain marijuana smoker. And I just remember the disgust I felt, this, this guttural feeling of grossness. And I only understood it because I had sat in the assemblies at school. And I thought, my father is a druggie. He's a drug addict. And how disgusting is that? And I didn't know, I didn't know what that was leading to. But I knew that it just, it disgusted me. And I committed at seven or eight years old to never using drugs because I thought, you know, here was this man that I thought I should idolize who now hit my mother, who left his family and he used drugs. And it was all starting to come full circle for me. This picture was being painted. You know, looking back, I genuinely feel like it was God painting this picture for me. This man who I loved was a drug addict. He sold drugs. He had women on the side. I have brothers and sisters that I had never met. His father was a womanizer. His father's father was a womanizer. And here it was all coming to light for me as this young child. And I started to realize what made me different and 
what I felt made me different was I never wanted to be like them. And I think what nailed it for me was I remember laying in my bed one night. It was late. I couldn't sleep. He was gone. And I heard my mom crying. And the only thing that I could rationalize in my young brain at the time was she was crying over the fact that she didn't have her husband. She didn't have the man that she wanted. And for, for the next couple of years, I watched her struggle with this. She was an amazing mother. I love her to death. She loved us, but she desperately wanted him to love her. And she was willing to do whatever it took, forgive him, change her lifestyle. She always thought it was her fault. I never wanted to make somebody feel that way. And so it, it didn't come full circle to me until I was about 14 and he had been absent for years. I never had that, that bond with him where we played catch or we played ball. But fast forward a couple of years, there was a private school, private high school in our area. And we were very close family friends with the head of the private school board. And my father was a lot of things. You know, as a child, I thought he was the devil walking the earth. I really did. I would have told you my father's the devil in disguise. He, he is Lucifer. I hated him. I was angry. I wanted nothing to do with him. But he was a great basketball coach. He had a phenomenal mind for sports. And I think that's where I got, I got my, what I perceive as coaching ability from. That I would tell you it's probably the only good thing I got from him. Uh, and so this board member reached out to him and offered him the job of, of head coach at the high school. And with that meant I got to go to the high school. And so, you know, what comes with coaching. And I think we can see it now is, is when you don't play certain players, parents get angry. So fast forward, he was my high school coach, freshman year of the varsity team. Uh, he brought a, a, a quite a few players with us that were better than some of the players that had been there for years and some parents didn't like it. Yeah. And somebody decided to do a background check on him. And what they found was not something anybody should have found in 1987. He was fired from Virginia schools for having sex, sexual relationships with seventh grade students at the high, at the middle school he worked at. He was banned from ever working in Virginia again, but in the eighties, you didn't have a computer system that could annotate that somewhere. And so that led to probably the darkest period of my life because the school didn't hide it. They were very open about why they were firing him. My peers knew about it. My friends knew about it. Adults knew about it. And it, as a 14 year old, it was, it was crushing. And so I, I, you know, when you sent me the questions, I, I did a lot of thinking about this. And I, I remember, you know, the darkest period of my life I got called into the headmaster's office and her name was Sister Cecilia. This was a Catholic school. Her and Sister Laura, they sat me down. I was alone. I was 14. And if you ask me now, they, they quoted this biblical verse out of context, but they looked at me and they said, the sins of our fathers are visited upon our children. And therefore you can't come back to this school. I didn't, I was 14. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to argue that. These are sisters that I thought, you know, gosh, they, they know the Bible more than me. I'm, you know, and they're telling me I'm never going to be forgiven, that his sins are my sins. And I went home and I, um, I spent a lot of time in my basement as a 14-year-old. And it was dark. Uh, it was an underground basement. I just remember thinking how awful life was. 
Like, what did I do to deserve this life? What did I do to deserve a father like this? This was not, a, I did, this wasn't my choice. I didn't get to choose this life. But why did I have to live it? And, um, you know, I thought about what suicide meant and how it impacted my mom, how it impacted my little brothers. I had two little brothers at the time that were going through some of the same things that I had already experienced, hurting because he wasn't around, hurting because he was this awful father, this awful dad. I, I shouldn't even call him a father because I think it does a disservice to, to God. But he was awful. Uh, he was abusive, physically, mentally abusive. He abused myself, my mother. He was terrible to my older sister. And I watched her go through things that no girl should ever go through because of who he was and his absenteeism. And, uh, you know, the fact that he had other kids that he was supporting and just, it was this awful feeling as a child. I mean, did he act that way? Was it only when he was drunk or high or was it any time? It didn't matter what he was, what substance he was using. You know, looking back, I've had a deep interest in psychology. And if I had to really do a deep dive investigation on who he was, he always acted this way when things got tight, when the pressure was on him. And when I say pressure, that pressure was the women angry that he wasn't leaving my mom fast enough or the pressure of my mom was about to find out and he was going to be discovered. And a lot of these relationships lasted years. I met many of the women. Uh, he actually took me to meet these women. We can talk about that. Um, he had a long-term he had a long-term girlfriend named Beth. Who he promised over and over he was going to leave my mom. And then one day she called my mom, and you know the ruse was up. Uh, my mom discovered it, and his parents got involved, and uh, therapists were involved, and it was an ugly time for our family. But it was discovered that Beth was pregnant. Beth had a baby named Elizabeth. I, to this day, have still never met her. But it was a very dark time for my family. And um, he ultimately transitioned. And I'm sure there was other women in between. But he transitioned to somebody named Sharika. And about 14 years old, again, at this time, I was homesick one day. And he decided to, this was in the time where he had been fired as coaching at that dark time in my life. As a 14-year-old, he asked me to come to a store with him. And I don't know if you remember that store, but it was pre-Home Depot. It was called Heckinger's. I don't know if we have that here. We went into Heckinger's, and um, this lady walked towards us, and she had her Heckinger's apron on, and I thought she was just an employee, and little did I know that uh, it was his girlfriend. I, it, what shocked me was, and not that it matters, but it was this, this African-American woman walked towards me, and I just didn't think anything of it. And she extended her hand to shake my hand. And she said, I'm your girlfriend's, I'm your father's girlfriend. Uh, he's leaving your mother for me. And I hope that one day you'll look at me as your mom. And I did what, what I would perceive any 14 year old to do. It was the ultimate sign of disrespect. I spit in her face and I walked three miles home and I just, I couldn't look at him. And then how do I look at my mom? How do I, you know, here we, we had just moved. My mom thought that moving to a new city, a new home would fix things between the two of them. And here I am meeting his mistress. And so this was a dark, dark time in my life. And so I remember sitting in my basement one day, that dark basement. Um, again, suicide crossed my mind. You know, people talk about their life, their life flashes before their eyes. It wasn't one of those life flashing moments, but it was me sitting in the basement on the floor thinking about my life and thinking about how 
how, how could God do this to me? I knew God. Um, I had been raised in a Methodist church. I didn't have a heart for God at the time that, that I, because I didn't know it. And I didn't have a heart for him because of my father. And I looked at my father as a six-day sinner, seventh-day repenter. And that's what I always call it. He was a six-day. He would sin for six days, and he would go to church on that seventh day. And it was all great. We had this perfect family. He would give us butterscotch lifesavers. And after church, we would stop for hostess powdered donuts. And we had this perfect life in the eyes of everyone else. Yeah. And I couldn't stand church because of it. And so I had this moment where this strange feeling came over me. And I still remember it. I can vividly, vividly recall it where I, I had this, this, this um, thought to just turn on the TV. I don't know why. And I turned the TV on and I was sitting in the dark and there was an infomercial speaking on the infomercial was an old MLB pitcher named Andy Pettit. And he was talking about a book called power for living. And Andy transitioned in the infomercial to Reggie white, old defensive end for the Eagles and green Bay Packers. Mm -hmm. Yep. And he started talking about God. And a 1-800 number came across the screen and they said, call this number for this free book on how you can get it, you know, develop a relationship with God. And something told me to pick up the phone, call the 1-800 number. And within about a week, I had the book. I don't know why. I can't tell you why that feeling came over me, but I received the book. I read the book through and through. And I knew in that moment that God was my father and God chose this life for me. He designed this life for me. He gave this life to me because he wanted me to be the one in my family who broke the cycle, the cycle of sickness, the cycle of dysfunction, the cycle of womanizing, the cycle of drugs, alcohol abuse, you name it, whatever it was, he wanted me to be a husband and father who changed the trajectory of my last name. And I knew it at 14. Now that doesn't mean I became perfect. Um, I still had a lot of anger in my heart that I had to work out, but I knew in that moment that he wanted me to read scripture and he wanted me to follow his commands. And that's the path he set in front of me. What was the name of that book? Power for Living. I actually, I actually looked it up on Amazon the other day. I sent it to my brother-in-law. It still exists. Uh, it was just a, there wasn't much money behind it that I can, that I can think of. It's just a, a blue book with standard white writing and the title of it was powerful living and powerful living changed my life. You made that decision at six and at seven and maybe a few times and then at 14. And I know you were convicted, but, but how did you still stay determined? You've made mistakes yeah. like we all have, but there's a lot of things that you could have done and you never once did. How did you, how did you stay away from the drugs and the alcohol and, and the unfaithfulness you know, to me, it was an easy choice. It just never, it never appealed to me. I never wanted to let my mom down. I never, I, what really drove me was to be an example for my younger brothers. I wanted to show them that the world laid out in front of them. It wasn't the world that they had to live in, you know, that they had a choice that we all have this personal responsibility that we can take for our lives, that we don't need to be a product of our environment. I heard that a lot as a child. You know, there's that old saying that you're a product of, of the world you grow up in. You're a product of your environment. I just didn't want to, I didn't want to live by it. I wanted to defy it. And that's probably why I've been, I've always been, 
you know, defiant in my adult life was, um, I don't believe that we need to live by everybody else's standard. I, I think that, you know, we can do what we want. We can do what we choose as long as it's in the, the guidelines of, of, of God and, and biblical. We don't have to use drugs just because our parents did or, you know, not be successful just because our parents weren't successful. And I, I was very much into sports as a child. And I remember hearing a lot that these athletes that came from in the inner city, that came from poor families and, and violent ridden communities used sports as a way out. And I, I made myself believe that it didn't just have to be them, that I too could use sports as my way out. I could use basketball as a means to change my life. And so that's what I dove into. I gave everything I had to basketball. It became my escape. And I would look at that, you know, nine inch round orange sphere as my ticket out of this life that I lived. And that's what I did. I used it to change the trajectory of who I was. And it did. It, uh, it gave me a college scholarship, which helped me get an education and led me to you know, where I am and, and who I am as a man. How much persecution or teasing or joking, I mean, how much did you get growing up because you didn't follow the crowd? And while you're in college, too. You know, it's, it's strange. Not as much as one would think. You know, there were times, but I had a great group of friends that looked out for me, that I was very close to, that understood where I was coming from. Um, I still look back and I had, a, I had a friend who was from a poorer family, who was from the city, and he too was using basketball as his way out. His sister was very successful in, in basketball, played college, played in WNBA. And I think he kind of knew who I was and where I came from. And so when we'd be out, he wouldn't let people pick on me. He'd be the first one to defend me. And, um, you know, I would, still, I, would, I would tell him to, to this day, Sherrod Teasley, uh, he, he never would really allow people to give me a hard time because he understood who I was. He understood that I was not going to bend to their peer pressure. And so he would sort of head some of that off in advance. And then when I got to college, you know, I just, I, I did a good job of, of picking the group that I hung out with. And I, and I really hung out with a lot of my teammates. Some of them had the same views. They weren't drinkers. And we would go to parties from time to time. But, you know, if it, if it came to it, I, I wasn't a big partier. Right? It just didn't interest me. You know, my, my, in college, the gym was open 24-7. And we could go to the gym at any time. That's what I would do. I, I would go to the gym. I'd work out. It became, it became my vice. It became my escape. You know, it became the noise in my head and silence is, is what kills people sitting in silence, you know, in their own thoughts, being negative all the time. And so I would never allow myself to just be silent unless I was, I was reading scripture, praying, you know, in a positive mindset in the negative times I would go work out and it became what saved me. And so I, I just didn't face a lot of those pressures. That I remember. I mean, I'm sure there were times, but I just don't really remember yeah. it being as bad as it is these days with social media. I, I was blessed with very good friends too. And I'm so thankful, thankful that I was, I was protected in a lot of ways. Yeah. All right. So in the last few minutes that we have, Bobby, 
now as a, as a, as a husband and a father, you're married to one woman or you, or you have one woman in your life. How are you a better father and a husband now because of all that? And what are y'all doing, you know, to instill, you got a 12 year old. That's a, that's a pivotal age right now. It's an overall daughter. And what are y'all doing to help her prepare for, well, I guess all your kids to prepare for what lays in store for them. Look, let me be the first to say that nothing's perfect. The hardest job in the world is marriage. And I think that's lost on a lot of people. They get married. They think marriage is going to be this, this, you know, romance novel. It's going to be perfect. And when it's not, they choose not to view it as a job. They choose not to, to put in the effort and the time, you know, they want to go to the other side of the fence, right? Where the grass is green and, and, and do things that are really going to destroy their family, destroy their marriage. And I think I, I went into this marriage as an open book. She knew everything about my past. She knew my family, but she also knew that, that I was determined and destined to change this, this life that I was given. And, and I was, I, I, I have to this day, you know, I, I liken, and a lot of people laugh at me when I say this, but I liken myself to a lion. You know, I have this desire of a lion that I'm just not going to bend. I'm not going to bend to societal norms or, or what the world is telling me that I don't need to be married, that I can have multiple women, that I don't need to be this present father to be good. And so we went into this marriage committed to putting our marriage first. That doesn't mean we neglect our children. It just means we put our marriage first because if we are not balanced, if we don't have a strong foundation, then how can we be united in raising our children? How can we give them a good home if we're unhappy in our own marriage? We can't. Mm -hmm. And so we make an effort to put our marriage first, to put in the effort to be communicating, to you know, be each other's sounding board, to call each other out. You know, if one of us is, is off balance, if one of us is spending too much time on a computer or a screen or, you know, just maybe not putting in the work that we should be putting in, then, you know, we have made a commitment to be the one that calls the other out to, to, to and not in a negative way to say, hey, you know, where are you? I need you here with me. And sometimes that can be frustrating in that moment. It can be very irritating because we're human, right? We don't want to be called out for anything to, to, you know, to be put front and center for anything. We, we think that we're doing nothing wrong. Right. And usually when you have time to think about it, you realize, okay, you know, I was in the wrong, I'm not in the right state of mind, but we've made the commitment to come back to one another in those moments and say, you know, you're right. Or I apologize. I, I was wrong. I was spending too much time on social media I wasn't giving you enough time. We make an effort to, to, even if it's 10 minutes, to spend 10 minutes a day together. You know, hey, how was your day? How are you feeling? Where are you right now? Go on dates, hold each other, you know, be present, right? And I think that's translated to the children. I think they recognize that, that, hey, you know, here we are, we're, we're 16 years into a relationship, 14 years into a marriage, and we still love each other with affection. We still have this deep, profound love for one another and we we are open with our children about that we're not afraid to to be affectionate in front of our children to talk to them about you know i i tell my girls all the time this is what you look for in a husband you look for a husband that's willing to go all in you look for somebody that's going to be 50 50 you know it shouldn't just be 
oh, you work, you know, the man works outside of the home. So when he comes home, he doesn't have any roles or responsibilities. I don't buy that. You know, it should be evenly split. We work together. We are united as a team. And uh, we recognize that. And so that's how we, we do our best to raise our girls and, and our son, you know, what he should be as a man to his wife, to his children. You know, as, how, as far as how we reason, we do our best to be biblical. Again, we're not perfect. We make a lot of mistakes. But, you know, I think one thing that society has done is taken away the innocence of our children. We're too graphic. Uh, we're too violent. We share too much sexuality on TV, on social media. We have far too many, you know, commercials about alcohol, about substances that you can take to make you feel better or fat, you know, food that can, that can bring up your mood or, or give you a dopamine hit. I personally, we believe that the Bible wants us to harness their innocence, their children, let them be children. Yeah. And so we encourage them to be children, to go out and play, to dig holes, get dirty, get muddy, scream, yell, go get in trouble, go learn. Go fight with the neighbor's kids, right? And then work it out. Figure out how to overcome it on your own. And don't come, don't come complaining to us to rescue. And that's a challenge as a parent. I think you can relate to that. You, your tendency is to, to want to rescue your child, right? But sometimes I believe that you have to allow them to have that freedom and the space to sort of figure things out. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we do with the, the oldest two is, uh, you know, really allow them the autonomy to make decisions for themselves. And they know, right? They know what TV shows they can't watch. They know what's inappropriate, what we consider inappropriate. And they do a pretty good job of self-policing, you know, telling us, hey, we turned on a show or we turned on a movie that we thought was a little inappropriate, or even we turned on a show that we thought was a little inappropriate for our seven-year-old son, Pierce. And, you know, they'll, they'll turn it off or they'll warn us and and maybe it, maybe it wasn't as bad as they thought it was. And we'll go screen it, view it, and, you know, green light it or, or tell them, you're right. You, you made a good decision. That's all we can hope to do. But we are honest with them. We raise them with a biblical approach. Um, we talk to them about what's going on in schools these days with LGBTQ and, you know, boys wanting to be girls and girls wanting to be boys. And I think it's, it's hard not to see it because. Mm-hmm. And it's on a lot more commercials now, yeah. too. Well, we also, we came from Loudoun County. That's where they were born and raised. And Loudoun <laughs> County, unfortunately, has been in the media a lot lately. And it's yep. hard to, no matter what you do it, no matter what you do, no matter how much you scrub it, they still see it somewhere. Yeah. And so they ask questions. Hey, what's going on? And, and, you know, we're not graphic. We tell them, we try to explain to them. And we just, you know, we always go back to this, that, that we love everybody, that we accept, accept everybody. But we believe that, that God doesn't make mistakes. And that's the bottom line yeah. is uh, there's two biological sexes. And, and if God wanted you to be a boy, then you would have been born a boy and vice versa. And I know that will trigger a lot of people that will inflame a lot of people. And like I said, we, we encourage them to love them and to, to accept them and to, you know, give them the gospel, prophesize, you know, help guide them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's all we can do. There's nothing wrong with not agreeing with someone. We can, we have different beliefs. That's okay. Absolutely. But I, and, I, I like your approach. Yeah. But you know, the, the bottom line is, um, you know, and again, this, this may not be 
what a lot of people like, but I believe that the craziest people have the loudest voices. Yeah. And I that's think true. that's part of the problem. Yeah. That, you know, too many people are afraid to, to speak their truth. Too many pe- people are afraid to come out and share their beliefs because they're afraid they're going to be canceled or ostracized or threatened. Yep. And I think you've, you've learned by now that I'm just, I don't live by those rules. And therefore I'm willing to tell them the truth again with, with being non-descriptive. I don't, we don't get into details. I don't want to take their innocence. My 12 year old is, is, is incredibly innocent. She's incredibly introspective. She's incredibly introverted. And I don't want to strip that from her. She's a child and deserves to be a child. We don't talk about politics. I don't bash Joe Biden. I don't bash the administration. I tell them the truth that, that these people were put into our lives through God's design and, and we give it over to God and allow him to light the path in front of us. Whether we like that path or not, that's the path he gave us. And we may never understand why, but as a believer, you follow his commands. And that's all I can do. Bobby, we're about out of time. What else? What else in closing? I think we, we covered a lot. You know, I appreciate it. I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate you giving me this opportunity. I appreciate your friendship. And, you know, you've, you've helped me with a lot of things. You've taught me a lot of things. And um, I just appreciate that. Well, you're welcome. I, I never thought anybody would ever give me. So <laughs> um, I do think that I have a message. I have a, I have a, unique, a unique life. And we didn't get into a lot of it. We certainly mm-hmm. didn't get into the drugs and, you know, some of the things that I, that I faced as a child. But, um, you know, I'm just a firm believer that uh, – Anybody can set their life on their own trajectory. That they don't have to to live by, you know, their family history or, you know, the way their parents raised them or, or, you know, the, the hand that they were dealt. And I, I go back to that a lot. I, there was a there was a, a rap song that um, I, I I wrote on my wall as a child, and I wanted to see it every day. And it was that that you don't have to live by the hand that you were dealt. And I was given a hand that, that I don't think any child should ever have to experience that any child should have to go through. Yeah, right. But I made it out because I wanted to make it out. And, and God wanted me to make it out. And I think that if you're, if you're open to, to God and his message, you know, even if you're not a believer, give it an opportunity. Pick up the Bible and read through it. I think it's the only, it's the only thing that can be truly defined as factual in my life. And uh, it opened my eyes and, and world to uh, to whole new possibilities. Well, you I'm answered the call. You know, I'm not perfect. I don't expect to be perfect. I tell my children this. I don't need them to be perfect. There was only one perfect, perfect person that walked this earth. And that person reconciled us to God. by mm-hmm. giving his life. Um, I want them to make mistakes. I'm going to make mistakes. I make mistakes every single day as a man, as a supervisor, as an employee, as a husband, as a father. I go to sleep at night thinking that I could have done things differently every single day. And I truly believe that everybody should do that. We've gotten into this, this phase in society where it's everybody else's fault. It's everybody else's responsibility. And I just don't believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Go to bed every night or look in the mirror every single night and think to yourself, I could have done something differently. And, and what made me believe that was Michael Jordan. When you heard that quote growing up that, you know, Michael Jordan has missed X amount of shots, but yeah. 
he never would have made that shot or never would have missed those shots if he didn't take that shot. Right. Yeah. And that was self-reflection. You know, he woke up every day realizing that he had to wake up every day and practice at his craft in order to be the best. But let's, let's be honest. Could Michael Jordan have stopped practicing so hard and still been the best in the world? Probably. He probably could have. He still would have dominated everybody. I mean, look at, look at the facts. He walked away from basketball for 18 months, came back and still won three <laughs> NBA championships, right? Yeah. But he looked at himself in the mirror every day with something to prove. And I think that's important. Look at yourself every day. What can I do better? How can I be better? How can I take responsibility for my life? And I think people have lost the ability to do that. It helps to have someone to be able to talk to. And speaking as men, it helps to have another man. I mean, I, I've talked and vented to you before about how unpleased I've been with my lack of patience with my family, especially well with my kids, really. And how I just don't, I've, I'm not happy with the job I've done with, with, my, with, you know, dealing with, with all the craziness and the back talking and things. So sure. I appreciate you listening to me on that and offering some, some advice. And we all need that though. Yeah, totally agree. Bobby, what about uh, any advice for people that are going through the same thing you're going through with a vaccine mandate, whose, whose job is, is in jeopardy. Maybe some, of, some people already know they've lost their jobs. Some sure. people, but what do you, yeah. what's advice you give them? I don't know if I'm the best person to ask for advice because, you know, look, if you stand for nothing, you fall for everything, right? It's cliche. It's, uh, you know, it's probably a very elementary quote, but I still believe in it. And I, and I teach my children that, you know, I think at some point in life, we have to pick a hill to die on, right? I'm sitting here talking about personal responsibility. You got to pick a hill to die on. I think this, this world, this country has lost true patriots, people that are willing to stand up. And I'm not talking about, forcing resurrections or arming yourselves and going and fighting against tyranny. Insurrections. Yeah. You said resurrections, right? Sorry. I'm sorry. Insurrections. <laughs> Apologize. Um, yeah. I, I'm talking about standing up and fighting for your personal freedom. Yeah. Um, I, I picked this hill to die on and I've given it over to God. And whether you're a believer or not, I think that you, I think you have to find peace in your decision. I think you have to find Patience. And I think here's what's the most important thing. And, and again, I think a lot of people fall into this trap, right? They, they're going through something and they make themselves believe that they're the only person going through it, right? Whether it's mental health issues or, or marital issues or children issues, they believe, oh, I'm the only person suffering from this. Nobody can relate to me. And I've never held that belief, right? I've never self-pitied or thought to myself, nobody can relate to me. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people going through the same thing I'm going through right now, struggling with the fact that they're about to lose their livelihoods. And I go back to that. I, I remind myself of that all the time. And when I pray for answers for myself, I do my, my best to remember that and pray for them as well. So remember, if, if you're listening, just remember, you're not the only one going through this. You're not the only one struggling with this. Find somebody that is. If you have to reach out to somebody, by all means, reach out to me. I'll talk to you. I'll help you through it. I talk to my employees about this every day. There's a group of us that, that try to take at least a 10-minute walk every day just to, just to you know, gauge where we are, how we're feeling about this. But you know, remember, you're not the only one going through this. There's millions of people that are, are facing the end of their our jobs or careers over this. And many people have already lost their jobs and careers. Mm -hmm. 
And, uh, you know, I applaud those people. I, I pray for them that they find some sort of balance, some stability, find a new job, whatever that entails. And, um, you know, I applaud them for, for, for standing up for themselves and fighting for the same freedom that I'm fighting for. That's right. Exactly right, Bobby. I, I, I stand with you um, in your convictions because anyone who resists being forced to have the vaccine, I, I fully support for whatever reasons why. I don't care. It's their right. And just like I, I chose to get it, that's great. You chose not to get it and you have your reasons why. And I, I back you 100%. Pray that you'll be able to, that whether something else better comes out of this. I, well, something better will come out of it at some point. Sure. I just don't know when. Well, let me just say this. I appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that. You know, I think, again, sometimes men have a hard time expressing themselves, expressing their emotions. I, I'm not a believer in that. I think we need to express ourselves more often especially to other men. So I appreciate you saying that. I know you've shared that with me in the past. I probably haven't told you enough that I appreciate it. And I say that because, you know, I've had this conversation with other people and those people don't want to speak to me anymore. They are angry with me. They've, they've separated themselves from my family over the fact that we won't get a vaccination. And I just don't buy into that. I, I think that's a shame that uh, you're, you're looking outside of who we are. You're looking at, at superficial things to make a decision as to whether or not we're going to have a relationship and it's to me it's a shame it's sad um so i appreciate your support and um i'm going to keep keep fighting this fight i'm gonna again i go back to it this is the hill that i chose to die on so if i lose my job over it then i'm in the same boat as a lot of other people well hey man uh it's been awesome i've been wanting to do this a long time so thank you and i'm gonna i'll put a link to your instagram Okay. profile or handle or whatever it's called. Sure. I, I noticed you, you last posted on March in March of 2016. So you're very active. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm on there. I don't post, I, I don't post a lot. No, I'm, I'm on there for more for, you know, to, to communicate with friends, to see how friends and family are doing. My wife has a Instagram page that's somewhat popular. Yeah. And so yeah, I, I monitor popular. the traffic on that. You know, I may start being more active. We, we've talked about what's next for us. We, we do have aspirations of getting into fitness and, and doing something that we love, especially if I lose my job. Fitness is, is what, what keeps us together and keeps us you know, mentally stable. Yep. We have a very deep passion for it. So, you know, that's the next road for us is uh, she runs a fitness business and I may, I may piggyback off of her and, and we may do this together. And so... Uh, yeah, it's, it's possible that I become more active, but I'm on there. I'm just not overly active. Yeah. Well, maybe you'll get some more followers and start posting something about yourself sure. every once in a while again. Sure. All right, man. Hey, I know you've got to go. Uh, thank you. Thanks for sharing your somewhat part of your life story, your faith and your convictions and all the other advice. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity, buddy. Thank you very much. <laughs>